0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 9 verses 2 to 13. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: Good morning, my name is Lee-Eric Fesco. I'm the director of discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church. It's such a privilege to be with you today. I always look forward to the opportunity of being with you. And I'm so very grateful to your pastor for allowing me the privilege of opening God's word uh, with you. It wasn't so long ago where I purchased for myself a shirt from the store. Now, perhaps you've purchased a shirt like this before. It was a shirt very much like this one, like the one that I'm wearing. Buttons all the way down, collar. Now when you buy a shirt like this, it's folded up in a rather complicated manner. It's locked down with pins and hard plastic in the collar and they mix tissue paper in there for some reason. No kidding, you gotta set aside a good seven to 10 minutes to be able to unfold this shirt, no joke. So I bought the shirt and I went through the work of unfolding it and I decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to wear this shirt to church tomorrow. Well, somehow my wife, Tracy, got wind of my intention to wear the shirt, a shirt that had just been unfolded, therefore not washed either, not pressed. And so she said to me, you can't wear that shirt tomorrow. I said, why not? She said, look at it. It's a mess. You've not even washed it. I said, no one will be able to tell. I can wear a vest over it. She said, yes, they can tell. Look at it it'll be fine by tomorrow. I'm going to hang it here in the bathroom so the shower steam gets to it and straightens it all out. Then she says, no, listen to me. Whether you realize it or not, when you leave the house looking like you slept in your shirt, it reflects poorly on me. If you walk out of the house looking as wrinkled as a raisin, people are going to think that I just let you do that. Do you see what she's saying there? My actions, my decision and action to wear a wrinkly shirt somehow, someway, communicate something not just about me, but about her. There's something beyond what I've got going on in the little world that I've created. Now, please don't put me on the spot and ask me to tell you what my favorite narrative in the New Testament is, but I dare say that if this one that we just read isn't in the top three, I'll be really surprised. Why is that? I love it for what you don't see in the passage. The words that aren't specifically in this account. The words that we find elsewhere in the scriptures that give this passage so much meaning. There's meaning beyond what we've just read here. Truly, we could could read that passage that we just read a hundred times. And if we only read those words, we'd, we'd miss so much. Peter, impetuous Peter, he didn't understand what was happening outside of the moment either. I can so identify with Peter. He's such a fire, aim, ready kind of guy. I've got a great idea, says Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. You have to look outside of this moment, Peter. You have to to get a sense for what's going on beyond the mountaintop. Because there's so much going on right here that if we pass by it too quickly, we'll miss it. So so let's dig into this passage and then look beyond it, all right? We'll look a little before it, a little beyond it, and in so doing, we we hope to learn exactly what's happening in this account and then discover what it means, what it means in the moment and what it means for for you and me today. Now, the first thing we want to do, we just want to back up a little bit. We want to rewind to what Pastor Russ talked about last week. Last week, we talked about Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, and uh, Jesus pointedly asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter, good old Peter, what does he say? You are the Christ. Can I I tell you something? This is a breathtaking moment. Do you know know what this means to them in this moment? We have a deliverer. We have a Messiah. But do you know what else? The kind of Messiah that they were looking for wasn't the kind of Messiah that Jesus was interested in being. You see, the Jews in Jesus' days were quite interested in in, in Jesus being a military Messiah. You know why? Why? Because that's the kind of Messiah the Jewish nation always got from God. Moses, now there's a guy, right? He let us out of captivity. He destroyed Pharaoh's armies too. The same thing you could say for Joshua we got to the promised land because God went before us and destroyed the Canaanites. See? That's the kind of Messiah we're talking about, right? You see, and the sooner you realize this about the Old Testament, the more it's going to make sense to you about the Old Testament. Everything, everything in the Old Testament is a pointer to what Jesus would do in the New Testament. Everything. Jesus tells us uh, this himself in Luke 24. Guys like Moses and Joshua were shadow pictures of the ultimate deliverer, Jesus. But Jesus wouldn't deliver us from the oppressive rule of Rome, which is what the Jews were under at this point. Jesus would deliver us from the greatest oppressor of all, sin and death. But here's the catch. Here's the catch. How would Jesus do this? How would Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, how would he deliver us from sin and death? How would he defeat the armies of sin and death? The only way to defeat this enemy would be to satisfy God's holy scales of justice. And the only way to satisfy the scales of God's justice, Hebrews 9 tells us, it echoes this from from Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So to be the Christ... And this is what Peter was totally missing. To be the Christ wasn't to be the bearer of the sword. The Christ would come to bear the weight of sin. And that would only happen by way of suffering, rejection, death. And if I could paraphrase Peter's reaction to this idea, it was along the lines of, what are you talking about, Jesus? No, 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 no. Sign me up for the victory, for the freedom, for the glory. That's what we're here for, Jesus. So stop all this talk about suffering and death. Get thee behind me, Satan. That was Jesus' response to Peter. You don't know what you're talking about, Peter. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but I have to imagine Peter thinking something along the lines of "This, this is not how it's supposed to go. This is devastating. Peter... I'm sure, along with all the other disciples, were really disappointed in this news. There's uh, something I've noticed in parenting, and maybe there are those of you that remember this from from growing up, or perhaps you've you've experienced this as a parent, and that is there's a fine line between obedience and bribery. (laughs) You see, I expect my kids to do something when I ask them to do it. That's it. Enough said. I'm the parent, you're the child, so do as I've asked you to do. That's how things are supposed to work. For example, I tell my kids it's their job. It's their job to get good grades. But we've reached the point now where they'll bring me the good grades and immediately ask of me, what's my prize? And I tell them, your prize is another meal. Your prize is clothes on your back. And then they leave my presence completely grateful, thankful, and feeling blessed. You know that's not true. No, this is what I mean. Once in a while I see that they've hit a wall with their studies. And let me tell you that's recently that's that's easy to do. Between online school and going back in person, being pulled out of school again and then shutting the school down for another an apocalypse that we just had it's been hard to maintain the momentum, you know? So at this point I do engage in a little bit of bribery. I say listen, If you bring home the good grades, I'll give you and you can fill in the blank with whatever prize you imagine my kids would be excited by, right? But listen, when I do this, suddenly we've gained a little bit of that momentum back. I've given them a reminder that there's benefits to doing well in school. And if we're being honest, those benefits, the benefits that naturally come by going to school every day, those are, those are hard to grasp onto. Those are hard for a 13 and a 14 year old to realize. You, know? you can't really hold discipline. You, you can't really touch perseverance. You can't look at and admire a good work ethic and put it in your pocket. You can't do that. Those are in, the intangible benefits of doing well in school. And to be honest, again, it's hard to convince a 13, 14 year old why those are really good benefits. So that's that's why I say something along the lines, how about something you can hold? How about I get you that that thing that you've said will take all summer to to save up for? How about I I get you that? If you buckle down now and get those good grades, I'll get you that. Suddenly they're all in, right? And ideally they're gonna learn the long-term benefit and process. Don't feel bad about doing this, people. If you have to bribe your kids a little bit along the way in the short term for them to realize the long-term benefit, do it. You see, the disciples at this point, all they hear is Christ. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. And you know what that means, right? Things are about to get good. I can clearly see the benefits. I can clearly see the glory and I'm all in. Wait, wait, what? Suffering? Death? I'm having trouble seeing the benefits here, Jesus. This is not at all what I expected. So, what does Jesus do? He does something that's somewhat rare in the New Testament. He moves their faith to sight. Faith, which is usually associated with something that you can't see, he moves their faith to sight. He gives them something visible. He lets them see the glory. He gives them a glimpse of glory, the part beyond the suffering. Imagine the roller coaster ride for the disciples that they're on right now. You are the Christ. Yes, suffering and death. No. So instead of leaving them to linger on suffering and death, what does Jesus do? How about something for the short term? Something that's going to help you through the long term. And then we get this. We get to today's passage where Jesus is transfigured before them and they don't see a rejected suffering Jesus. They see Jesus in glory, blinding glory. Now, now this is just fantastic. Remember what I said about having the passages outside of this one inform, of, inform us of what's going on in this one. Peter, James, and John, these are Jewish men. They know all about God appearing in the Old Testament. It wasn't something you'd describe as familiar. It was often overwhelming to be in the presence of God, to be in the presence of the glory of God. Among the more memorable instances in my mind comes from Exodus 33. You remember this one? Moses asks God, let me see your face. Can I see your face? I want to see your face. And what does what does God say to Moses? No way. No way. You'll die. You'll die. No one can see my face and live. You can't behold my glory and live. So, so what did he do? He tucked Moses behind the rock and he passed by, showing Moses his, his backside. And after just that much exposure to God, after just that much exposure to God's glory, what happened to, to Moses? He came down off the mountain, they were afraid of him. Why were they afraid of him? Do you remember? His face was literally glowing, literally glowing, just from being in the presence of God for for that much and catching that much of a glimpse. Whenever we see any part of God's glory, it's overwhelming, it's intense, it causes a reaction of, go away, I'm ruined. Think about Isaiah, I'm undone. And this, this is the miracle of the Incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, not just the arrival of a baby, but as John described in the opening prologue of his gospel account, no man has seen God. John is very aware of this reality. You can't look at God. You can't behold God. That's impossible. And then, and then, the Word is made flesh. He spoke about this same chapter, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John realizes the miracle that is the fullness of God dwelling among us in the flesh. So so how is it that the fullness of God can be around them and not get blown away like we read about in the Old Testament? You might say, as Jesus, uh, you might say that Jesus, as the as the Christmas Carol goes, veiled in flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. But here in this passage, we might say that Jesus crossed the line from the supernatural, from the natural to the supernatural, from the human to the divine. His cloak of humanity that veiled his glory was pulled back just a bit, just enough that that manifest deity came shining through, and his glory. Jesus' glory became visible. He, trans, he transformed right before the disciples' eyes. Yes, the disciples were rattled by talk of suffering, but Jesus gives them a glimpse of glory. Peter later wrote about this too. This very event, uh, 2 Peter 1:16 to 18, listen to this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's telling us, we saw it. We saw his glory with our own eyes on the mountain. We saw it. We saw what precious few people have seen. Do you see what a watershed moment this is for the disciples? They're saying, we saw something that only God can possess, and we saw it in Jesus. We got a glimpse of it. Now, there's more that's going on here. They're not alone up on this mountain. Who else appeared with Jesus in glory? Have you ever made um, associations with certain people? Is there someone in your life that when you see them it automatically triggers a memory or a thought or a feeling? When I say, Sylvester Stallone, what comes to your mind? It comes, what comes to my mind is Rocky. Okay, and, and thanks for that intro to, to crown him with many crowns. Reminiscent of I of the Tiger, I might, I might add. Rocky, he, he, 86 movie credits, according to IMDB, has Sylvester Stallone, but it'll always be Rocky to me, and to a lesser extent, Rambo. <laughs> Harrison Ford, 84 movie credits, but when I see him, I don't say, hey, there's Harrison. I say, there's Han Solo to a lesser extent, Indiana Jones, right? Now, we're told here in our passage today that along with Jesus appeared Moses and Elijah. What are they doing here? I'm telling you, when I get to heaven, I want to see a replay of this. Or I wanna talk to Peter, James, or John and and ask them, how did you know it was Moses and Elijah? Did you just automatically know when you saw them or there were introductions made? John, Elijah, Elijah, John. I really wanna know, no kidding. But here's the real question, why? Why were they here? Why Moses and Elijah? Did it have to be these guys or could it have been David and Samson? Or was there something special about Moses and Elijah? When you think of Moses and Elijah, is there something that we should immediately associate with them? Yes. When you think of Moses and Elijah, you should think the law and the prophets If there was a person who personified the law, it was Moses. And if there was ever a person who personified the prophets, you'd certainly include Elijah in that conversation. We have the Rocky of the law and the Han Solo of the prophets up here on this mountain. So sure, you might say Moses and Elijah are here representing both the law and the prophets, but on the other hand, they're representing the fact that it's the end of an era, The age of the law and the prophets is about to come to an end. And in a somewhat symbolic manner, it's as if they're passing the torch on to Jesus. It's one age coming to an end, and it's about to be made complete in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's as if they were bearing witness to the disciples. This is everything we ever pointed to. Jesus will make everything we did and said complete. It was and always is pointing to Jesus. See, Peter? Can you see the glory, Peter? Of course Peter can see. Of course it's Peter. And he has a suggestion. This is great. Look at this. This is what I'm talking about. The glory, the good stuff. Let's stay up here, Jesus. Let's start the kingdom right here and right now. And the scripture tells us that Peter didn't know what else to say. And he's desperate to to break the silence. He says, I've got a great idea. How about we make a tent for each one of you? Why tents? Was Peter an outdoorsman? Was he a camping enthusiast? No, when you read tents, don't think they're about to build a campfire and start singing songs. Can you think of any other places in the Bible that references a tent? How about the mechanism of gathering for worship before the temple was built? This is what Peter is suggesting here. A tabernacle for each of them. It's like Peter is saying, let's build a mechanism of worship for each of you, and let's stay a while. Do you see where Peter's mind has moved at this point? He just received the news of suffering, rejection, and death. Now he sees the glory, okay? So in his mind, he's moved back to, hey, you guys, let's sidestep this whole suffering thing. Let's just get comfy up here. Let's establish the kingdom right here and right now. We've got all the players up here. We've got Rocky, Han Solo. Who's gonna take this from us, right? And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came down out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The voice of heaven says, hey, Peter, listen. Listen to what he's telling you. This isn't just a listen to Jesus, generally speaking. He's saying, listen. Listen specifically about what he's saying about suffering, rejection, and death. The very thing you're trying to avoid, Peter. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. You see... Peter was putting Moses and Elijah up on a pedestal equal to that of Jesus. And don't get me wrong, Moses and Elijah are important figures in redemptive history. But like we've said all along, they're only pointers. They're only shadow pictures of the ultimate Moses, the ultimate Elijah, Jesus. Don't worship the shadow of Jesus. Worship Jesus. Jesus only. It's now only Jesus who remains, who's transfigured form subsides so not glorified Jesus but Jesus once again veiled in flesh who condescended for what purpose to live a righteous life and to give that life as a ransom for many without bloodshed there can be no forgiveness of sin the sneak preview of the kingdom is gone and 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 no Peter the kingdom is not going to come now the only one left is Jesus, and he's not in glorious form anymore. And from this point forward, this is sort of the turning point. This is the turning point in the ministry of Jesus. From this point forward, we start our descend, descent off the mountain to the cross, to the suffering. So what do we learn from this? What, what does this mean for us? Notice, notice what the expectation of Jesus might have been up to this point, and even in this moment, Jesus, we've seen some pretty amazing things and, and we've learned some pretty awesome things from you. We've said it out loud, you're the Christ. Okay, so let's go, let's do it. Let's get on with the rescuing and the overthrowing. Ready, go, let's go. And what does Jesus say? What did the Father say? Listen, listen to Jesus, the suffering, that part. We can't fast forward past that part. We can't skip it. This is how sin and death is defeated. One of my sons is, is prone to uh, ear infections, especially in the, in the summer. He gets a swimmer's ear, and it's been three years in a row now where he's had an ear infection. And let me tell you, it's miserable. It's miserable. It's miserable for him, and it's miserable to watch him suffer, because there's really almost nothing you can do in the moment to, to relieve him of the pain. And the thing is, it sort of sneaks up on you. One day he gets out of the pool, the next day he says he still feels like he has water in his ear, almost as if a signal, Things are about to get rough. So the last time we went through this, we, we observed that he was developing an ache in his ear. So we called the ENT doctor that he goes to, and at the time, it was during one of these spikes in the pandemic, and, and we couldn't just up and go to the doctor, right, as we had done before. We called him and they told, they told us they couldn't see him for at least a couple of days. An earache just doesn't clear up. It, it gets progressively worse. So in this particular case, we also discovered that we couldn't just go to a walk-in clinic either. We tried that before. They treated him by blasting his ear with water, right? It it made it worse. You don't do that, we're told. So we have to wait to see his ENT. He's a specialist. Because the ENT, they have this tiny mechanism that actually vacuums out the ear very, very carefully. Now let me tell you, that's as horrible as it sounds. (laughs) And he hates it. And I was in the ENT's office with him, and they had him lie down and and brace. To him, this was torturous. He didn't want to do it. He was pleading with the doctor, please be careful. Please please just do it super slow, super gentle, please. Because even to touch his ear was causing him to wince. So I was holding his hand and trying to help him be brave, and I told him, hang tight. Just hold on. You can do it. Once once they do this, you're going to turn the corner from being miserable to being well. This will mark the spot. When things start to get better, right here, you just have to make it through this and then you'll be on your way to getting better. Make a long story short, within a few days of that moment, you wouldn't have known anything was ever wrong with him. Here's the point. There was no sidestepping the pain. There was no sidestepping the hurt. He had to go through it and even subject himself to an ear vacuum if he wanted to get better. And hear me out, I'm not trying to make a comparison between what Jesus did and what my son went through, but here's what I am saying. I'm saying that Jesus didn't sidestep the suffering. As much as a good idea as it sounded to guys like Peter, Jesus wouldn't sidestep the suffering. He couldn't sidestep it. He had to do it. He had to do it because this is what God's justice required. The payment for sin, for your sin and mine, is death. That's what God's perfect justice required. And it required a perfect sacrifice. And now, now that his payment on our behalf has been secured, no more punishment. No more punishment. Because God's wrath has been perfectly satisfied. So the suffering we go through now, the earaches, the rejection, the disappointment, the failure, the heartache, it isn't punishment It's sanctification. It's the process whereby we, you and me, we're being made to be just like Jesus. We're being shaped in his image to walk in his footsteps. So if we're being conformed to his likeness, this means we don't sidestep suffering either. If we're being made to be like him, we shouldn't expect to sidestep suffering. Again, not because we're being punished, but we're being made to be like him. Do you see what this means for someone like my son with an ear infection? No. There was no sidestepping suffering through an earache. Why? Because even in that kind of suffering, an earache, we can rest assured that God is even using that to mold him and shape him into the likeness of of his son. There's no suffering for no reason for the Christian. He uses it, all of it. And what does he do with it? Consider Philippians 3, 20 to 21, where we read this. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that embraces him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies, earaches and all, so that they will be like his glorious body. You see what that's saying? Jesus is our glory, and we are being made to be just like him. And like Peter, James, and John did, we get a taste too. Just a taste. This table is is a taste. Whatever it is that you're facing now, whatever suffering, whatever rejection, whatever hardship, this table assures us of what's on the other side of that suffering. It's Jesus. And a glorious feast at which he secured a space for you not because he bypassed the suffering, but because he walked right through it for you. Please pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've not left us without hope. Thank you because of the life, the suffering, and the death of Jesus, and the resurrection. We have certain hope. Thank you because of Jesus we have been made right before you and that we, have, that we right now, that we've been forgiven right now, We have been forgiven, declared righteous, and even in the midst of a struggle, you have assured us that there is divine purpose for all of us, for all of it. Make us like your son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.